economic issues are always moral issues because they're human issues, and we're always aiming at the good when we do things. I describe the economy as being about gift, um, and it involves a kind of commitment to the future that is very closely and, and deeply Christian. Hello and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. In this episode, we interview Edward Hadass, who, after a career in financial journalism, is now a research fellow at the Las Casas Institute in Blackfriars Hall, Oxford. Edward has just published his second book on economics, and we wanted to ask him about his new way of thinking that looks beyond the typical dichotomy of capitalism and socialism. I hope you enjoy the episode. Very often when I raise a question about the viability and legitimacy of our current economic arrangements, I get reactions from people, and this tends particularly to be uh, people who already work in, in the very most general terms of the industry, that human beings just are capitalists, and therefore there's nothing to really change. There's no alternative way of doing things. Now, uh, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you, neither Barney nor I have any agenda at all about capitalism or anything else. But that's yeah, this isn't necessarily this... an anti-capitalist rant. <laughs> not, not at all. No, not yeah. at all. No, the, the, the point in making that comment is just to say there's an assumption out there, particularly among people who maybe are feeling defensive because of their own investment in the current arrangements. There's an assumption that it's at best otios and at worst actually misleading to suggest that we could do anything differently at the deeper level. Maybe we can tinker with the shape of things, but we can't fundamentally operate in a different way. So, and Barney and I then had a wide ranging conversation about how actually there is a contingency to the way that we've set things up now, which doesn't mean that they're wrong, but it does mean that they're not given. And that's the sort of space that we wanted to explore. What's gone into the, the, the current economic setup? How questionable is it? How questionable should it be? specifically in connection with, you know, broadly speaking, Christian and religious perspectives on the human being. Okay, um, let me start by saying I think that the whole word capitalism is a really unhelpful descriptive word. It comes out of an intellectual tradition of first Marxists criticizing it and then a certain kinds of industrialists praising it. But it's a very Whatever it is supposed to mean, it doesn't describe the way the economy really is. Modern economies have giant governments. Um, they have a whole collection of different purposes that they serve. So they serve prosperity of various ways. They serve workers um, or don't serve them. They have a relationship with the physical environment, which I know um, you're very interested in. Um, they have a relationship with consumption. Um, they have relationship, or the government, as I said, plays a major part in it. Um, we have corporations, we have um, not uh, other, other kinds of economic organizations. And that's developed um, the modern economy over a couple of centuries. And so this notion that we have a capitalist system that is defined by a very rigorous, rigid set of rules is just a very poor piece of empiricism. It's really a piece of propaganda from the way I look at it um, to say, well, this is how it is and this is what motivates people. But it's not how it is and it's not a very accurate description of what actually motivates people. Um, and so the, the notion that it's some way fixed or you know, there's a basic psychological fix that naturally leads to this highly competitive, highly profit-oriented arrangement is, is false, first of all, because we don't have a highly competitive, highly profit-oriented arrangement, or that's only a very partial description of what we have. And secondly, because the motivations that people have in the economy, as in anywhere else, are, are mixed. There's ambition, there's co collaboration, there's concern for various things. So I, I think that the whole framing that, and I know you get this, I get this also, but I think that whole framing is very unhelpful. So let me, let me be clear what you're saying. You're not saying that capitalism is necessarily bad or wrong, but just that the word itself doesn't actually apply to the economies that we live in. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, are fairies good or bad? Well, if, if they were real, it would be a lot easier to tell um, whether they're good <laughs> or bad. 
uh, you know, capitalism is a piece of ideology. It's a word that is meant to be either praised or criticized, but it's not descriptive. The same is true mm -hmm, of socialism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all what, what do we mean by socialism? Depending on what you mean, the 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 actual economy is more or less socialist, but there, there's no sense in which the say the the debate between capitalism and socialism is a very meaningful debate because the economy doesn't isn't describable in that kind of simple terminology. Okay, yeah. I mean, these, this is some rather counterintuitive suggestions for most people who uh, I, I can think of who might be listening. So could you unpack it a little bit? Why, why are these unhelpful terms? And what would be better terms to help us understand our own economy? Well, um, Pope John Paul II fretted about this, and he used to refer to the business economy. Um, I tend to just say the modern economy or the industrial economy. So you have various features of this economy. You have the idea of employment as the way that we arrange our labor. Um, you have mass production and mass consumption. You have an extremely large government. You have very large portion of the economy being paid for, that is to say, in, in using money as its means. You have immense amounts of complexity. And you have, as I mentioned, and I think this is really relevant to what you guys want to talk about, you have this multiplicity of purpose. You know, while it's often portrayed as the only economic good is GDP growth, um, in practice, if you're running a corporation or employing people or you're a consumer, you have many things on your mind um, and many responsibilities. Um, and in terms of the capitalism-socialism debate, um, in the modern economy, roughly 50%, 40 to 50 to 60% of the money that flows through the economy, GDP, goes through the hands of government, and the rest of it is heavily regulated by the government. Um, so the notion that we could describe this as a sort of free enterprise, private system, really just doesn't even make any sense. It's just a very poor description. Why do people have this description? Why, as you said, are people going to be surprised if they listen to this? Well, that's a good question. It's not a question about modern ideologies and modern thinking, but it, it, it just... It, it seems to me the first thing one wants to do in a discussion like this is to look at what's actually going on with somewhat more open eyes. And, and, and you can then say, I don't have to be a radical, you know, Heideggerian empiricist of some sort, or, you know, Husserli, and, uh, to say, well, that's just a very bad description. Mm. I think that's so helpful, um, Edward, because a lot of the conversation about, the, uh, about economics that I've experienced is essentially shadow boxing. You know, people pitch camps organized around um, points of ideology that, that then don't translate in any obvious way into uh, real-world scenarios. The real-world scenarios always seem utterly more, more complex than that. And I find that for, for that reason, much of what counts as moral debate in economics is a bit vacuous. It's mostly point scoring and arranged around ancient sites of pitched battles between supposedly different value systems. Um, which generate an awful lot more heat than light. So it's it's really useful to to have your your clarification on that that yeah. these that that is in fact that the, the terms capitalism and socialism in fact don't illuminate very much about our current arrangements. Uh, if, I mean, if you look back to the nineteenth century, one of the great insights of the the popes in the nineteenth century was, was that liberalism, which was one of the names that was given to capitalism at the time, liberal economics and socialism were two twin offspring of kind of enlightenment approach to social organization, um, to hierarchy, to social controls. And you know, Pope Leo XIII had twin encyclicals, one about the economy against socialism, that's the one that we tend to read more often if we read papal encyclicals, rerum novarum, and one against liberal ideas um, in both the economy and in politics, libertas. Um, and, and that was a very conscious effort to see the, the argument of, um, lib of then liberalism and socialism, now capitalism and socialism, as, as you said so nicely, shadow boxing. Um, and to, to try and understand the, the shared values um, which, which underlie it. Edward, could I, could I ask you, having kind of got a, a sort of meta-level picture of um, the landscape and appropriate ways of describing it, could you tell us a little bit about 
your own route to this kind of conversation. So you used to be a financial analyst and a financial journalist, and you're now writing about morality and markets and the role of money in finance and what's, what's, what's wrong about that and what's right about that. Can you tell us how did you, how did you evolve into the work that you're currently doing and what's, what's the sort of, for, for our, our, our listeners who may not have read your work or may not have come across it, can you give us a, a very, very brief takeaway of what you're trying to say in your work at the moment, as brief as you can? I'll do my best. Okay, my great gift here was that I went into finance without ever, ever taken any economics. So I wasn't brainwashed by academic economics as you Goodness know, me. The, young, the young tend to be. <laughs> so I came into it with a background in philosophy, and there were a lot of things that just didn't, didn't cohere to what I thought of as human nature and as what I observed uh, in, in terms of the practices didn't cohere with uh, the theory that was I had you know, picked up on the side but hadn't, as I said, been indoctrinated in. So that was a, a, a kind of tension that um, I explored over the years I was working. Um, I remember being young, a uh, young professional and taking a little time off to go to the Buffalo, New York Public Library and look for books about economics to try and understand a little bit more about what was what was going on, um, and sitting in the shelves there reading Schumpeter's Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. So I have a long background here. Um, I wrote my first book on economics, uh, which came out in 2007, uh, called Human Goods, Economic Evils, and it's a little bit of a mess, um, but the basic idea there, uh, is, which is the one I'm st still working on in economics, is to try and integrate what we do know or what I believe we know about human nature, about our virtues and our vices, um, about human societies, how we organize ourselves, and about the things that economics is really concerned with, the goods of uh, labor, the goods of consumption, the goods of social organization, the goods of the environment, to try and integrate all of that into a schema that was much more sophisticated, more realistic than what is taught in economics. Um, and the last book I've written, just to, to finish your, your question, is called Money, Finance, Reality, Morality. And it's applying that basic framework or putting into that basic framework um, the monetary economy um, and, in particular, the financial system. So essentially, if, if I'm to understand what you're saying, you're, you're trying to reshape economics to be more focused on human flourishing rather than on sort of exchange and money. Yeah. So if you start the economy, uh, economics, they, they, you know, they, this academic brainwashing starts with a picture of what the central act of economics is, and that's exchange. Um, so you say, um, we're going to, well, as Adam Smith, considered the founder of modern economics, talks about the, the urge to truck and barter, to exchange things. Um, and that's to me crazy. Um, I think what you want to think about is what people do, which is they labor and they consume, and they consume the fruits of their labor. But the they there becomes a larger and larger group as the economy becomes more sophisticated, and we have this great organizational challenge of how we organize people's labor, how we organize consumption, and that's where economics as a discipline comes in, is to try and think about how people do and should labor, how they do and should consume, and how that laboring and consumption, or particularly the choice and availability of consumption, um, should be, or the production, should be arranged. Edward, could you explain as simply as you can, why is exchange the wrong, if you like, fundamental concept? Okay. for economic activity. And let, let, I'll just be devil's advocate. It seems that exchange contains as a concept a relationship between people. Whereas, am I right in understanding that you're suggesting that we substitute two apparently unrelated ideas for that one idea? So labor and consumption for exchange. What's, what's the kind of gain to thinking about it in those terms? Okay. Well, to be fair, I do talk about the great exchange, which I, by which I mean the exchange of labor for consumption. So we, produce, we offer to the world labor 
and we take from the world, the humanized world um, that we create with our labor, we take from it the things we consume. And, that's a, and then that consumption supports us in our labor. So there's a circle that is an exchange of a sort, but it's at a very high level. And what you'll notice in that is that there are kind of gift there um, that we give to the world our labor, and it's not well described as a qu in, a qu in a quantitative way. Um, we can approximate it sometimes quantitatively, but there's a kind of generosity inherent in our labor. Um, it's you know very obvious, say, in maternal labor or labors of love, but it's there in basically all of our labor. There's a kind of sur surplus of what we're giving and the world itself is very fertile also, and well, we can make it so, and so it too is very generous. And the focus on exchange, and this dates back to Aristotle, is all about precision. It's all about something being equal to another. Measurable. Measurable. Yeah. Um, and I want to get to this idea of what we're doing as humans is offering and receiving in ways that are not easily or well described by measuring. The measuring mm. is convenience, but it doesn't get at the ontological center. So and so if I'm to understand you correctly, you're saying that, for example, a mother raising her children is not paid to do so, but it still counts as labor. And so if she's not being paid for it, it doesn't count as an exchange. And so it doesn't fit within economics as it currently operates. Correct. So um, if you read through the history of economics, it takes until the 1970s when feminist economics starts for anyone to even notice that women's labor should be considered, or you know, traditional women's labor should be considered labor much as, um, uh, as, as you know, working in a factory is considered labor. Um, from a human point of view, they're identical. From a social point of view, they're obviously different. And one wants to think about that tension within the context of economics, not have to go outside economics and say, let's become sociologists here, uh, because it really is an economic question. So in other words, we, a lot of us labor in ways that don't earn money and we don't expect them to earn money. Right. So um, the, I, in, in, in the, the new book um, uh, on money and finance, I, talk, I divide the economy into three uh, as it were, I, I call it a triptych. So it's like a picture with three three folds on it. And on the the right side of my imagined picture is the economy that doesn't have money, and that would be the labors of love, the labors, many of the labors of scholarship. And don't press me too hard on what I mean by labor because it's hard to define. And then um, in the middle is the labor and consumption that we do pay for, um, which I call quite creatively, the paid-for economy. And on the left is the places where we use money but don't have any economic activity, and that's finance mostly, but some other things also. Use money without any economic activity? Yes. How can you do that? Well, you buy a, Presumably a share. Presumably you mean without production. Yeah. I mean, you buy a okay. share in a company, you lend someone some money. There's no direct labor that's involved in that. It may indirectly be connected to labor, but it's not obviously or closely so connected. So ju just to be clear about terms, Edward, so when you use the word economy here, when you say money without economy, you're using economy in the traditional sense of um, activity with productive value or productive activity with value. And yes. you're suggesting that in that third fold of the picture, there is money, but there isn't productive labor in yeah. that traditional sense. So I, I, I put that third fold, the left fold, the money without economy, as a sociological construction rather than a primarily economic construction. It does have economic ties, but the, the purpose of it is largely sociological. So could we, ju just, just to be clear about terms, because I'm, I'm guessing that our, our listeners will think huh? um, the spontaneous kind of, um, the spontaneous understanding of economics is that economics has anything to do with money. Whereas you're suggesting, uh, uh, correct me, Edward, but you're suggesting that economy refers to productive activity. It doesn't refer to activity involving money. Is that correct? That or, is, or is that correct? Yeah, that's entirely correct. And well, okay. I start my new book by saying exactly what you just said. You probably think the economy has to do with money. Now, to be fair to economists, they often hedge this and they'll say it has to do with any activity that we do of a certain sort. But then as soon as they get past their theoretical definition, they move in and, it, you know, 
in practice, it means um, something that you have to do with money. And so when you get to, say, talk about domestic labor, the, the, the mother raising her child, say, or the parent raising his or her child, to be politically up to date here, um, the, uh, um, the economist can only say, well, let's impute a wage. Let's, let's think of what you would have to be paid to do this labor. They can't think in terms of, well, this is something that humans do. And when, if you do start thinking in those terms, you've, you've actually demeaned it. You've taken out some of the meaning that it has in the human condition to, to say, well, we could pay for it. Uh, the most obvious so, example of, of this is, is sexual labor, as it were, um, where we, as soon as you pay for it, it changes its quality entirely. So is this, a, is this an argument similar to, and are you sympathetic with the approach of Michael Sandel, that monetizing, monetization has crept into too many spheres of social life? Um, I'm mildly sympathetic. I mean, I'm sympathetic to the, the idea that money is something you have to think about. It comes with social meanings. I have 24 different meanings in my new book that money has that are independent of its actual economic function. 24, goodness. Um, <laughs> I, I was working on it, so I got up to two dozen. Uh, but uh, I, I'm proud of that list, I'll have to admit. But the, the thing that Sandel misses is that actually in the modern economy, we've actually been retreating from monetary uh, standards to a very significant extent. So um, the welfare state works on giving education without money to people. It gives um, it gives health care without money. We use our roads without money. Well, I'm not sure. I, I, I know people who would object to that statement. They would say that money is used in all of those things and it's taken from the taxpayer via the government and then spent in order to obtain those things. Okay, of course that's true. Um, it's, 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 in, it's an, an interesting situation, and this is one of the reasons why we have such a large government, is that um, the, from the user's point of view, the consumer of education, roads, health care, it's largely in that right section of the triptych, the part that's used without money. But from the provider's side, it's paid for. So we have what I cleverly call a no money now problem. That is to say, we want to allow it to be consumed without paying, to be allocated not on the basis of how much money you have, but on some other criteria, like being alive or of the right age for public schools. Or um, being a citizen of a particular nation. Right, being within the, the, the ambit of the welfare state of that nation. So we have allocation systems that are non-monetary, but we also have um, monetary rewards for the labor that goes into it, and money pays for the buildings. So we have an, a problem that we need to balance, and what we do is we use the government to balance that. And again, just think how far we've traveled in talking about this from capitalism or socialism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, we're, mm -hmm. we're in a very different conceptual universe, I think one that's much clearer. So well, I think some people would say that using the government to achieve anything like spending money on this or that is already part, heading in a socialist direction, wouldn't they say? Of course they would say that, but it's a really unhelpful way of thinking about it because, um, y y I mean, we, we should think as political philosophers, as, as citizens, we should think, well, how much government do we want? And we can say, well, I would rather not have um, teachers paid by the government. Um, I want us to pay for them. Um, but it's interesting that when you do that, say in the United States, there's a lot of that. You then say, well, the government should give everyone money to pay the teachers. So you haven't well, really I mean, gotten the government out of it. The people who are against socialism wouldn't say that, right? Well, some would. Some would. Or they would say, that's a first step towards something, something. But... Um, one of the things that I, I think is, is, is true of people who are against socialism is that they wish to paint a picture, this capitalist picture, that's very simplistic and bears no relation, as I've said repeatedly here, to the real economy. But the reason they want to do that is they want to pretend that there's some easy solution. There's mm. some way to get the things that we have in our economy, for example, universal education, health care allocated on the basis of need and not of income, uh, you know, not perfectly, mm -hmm. but roughly speaking, you know, roads for all, all this production, um, safe quality of goods and services, all of this stuff 
And they want to pretend that you could do that without the complexity of the governments that we have. Mm. Um, because they say, oh, we're really capitalists. We're just messed up by having half the economy run by the government mm -hmm, and the other mm -hmm. half closely supervised. But no, so, that's so not Edward, the way to look at it. That's so um, that's so interesting and, and so helpful that this idea of a pure a pure capitalism is is it in itself a bit of a fantasy, a bit like the fantasy of a pure socialism. I'm thinking, as you speak, how often in both categories the the, the fantasy of a purely natural economic condition is invoked. And one of the things that's striking me in in listening to you is there isn't, and this is obviously touching on how we started this conversation, but there isn't really anything purely natural going on. We're, 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 we're operating in a very complex cultural artifice. And we have therefore, and, and this, is perhaps, this is perhaps a question, we have therefore more agency over these arrangements than some pretend. That these are cultural artifacts and we should be having, this is a question framed as a statement, we should be having more conversation about whether these cultural artifacts serve the kinds of goods that we actually want to see served. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I could not agree more with that. And you know, this gets you back to where we started, is this is a human construction. And sure, it relates to certain things that are nat by nature human, like we need to eat. So one of the things in the economy is it's going to produce enough food for us to survive. Um, we need shelter, so we'll presumably, you know, the economy will produce shelter if it possibly can. But past that very basic assumption, it's really up to us. And one of the great, you know, sort of the experiment of the modern economy is we've moved millions of miles, as it were, away from the economy that we had in the pre-modern state. You know, in the pre-modern yeah. economies everywhere in the world, roughly 90 to 95 to 98 percent of the population was engaged in something that was very close to subsistence agriculture, either, yeah. either being supporting it or participating it, in it directly. Um, yeah. Now that's five percent at most of in industrial societies yeah i mean that's really interesting it's, it's due to things like the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution that enable like tractors and combine harvesters that say that were able to labor on behalf of human beings and i mean many people would say well that's great because it's freed up a lot of other human beings to do other kinds of activity like maybe making art or literature mm -hmm. or, or whatever yeah so uh, I mean, whether it's good or not, let's think about how complicated it is for a second, and then I'll come back to whether it's good. It's, you know, it involves all those things. You said it also involves chemical fertilizer. It involves transport networks so that we can bring food from the farm to the city. It involves uh, amazing techniques of preserving food, of processing food. There's just an enormous amount of work that goes to make our diets what they are. Um, every time I buy some, you know, uh, uh, you know, vegetables from Brazil, I think about this because that's the kind of thing I like to think about. What's gone into getting these vegetables from Brazil for me in the winter so I can enjoy fresh fruit? And, one and why might are say, they so cheap? And why are they so cheap? Mm. Because they're so, yeah. because our economy is so enormously productive that we can do these things. Um, mm. And in terms of whether it's good, well, the first thing that one can say that, that the economy has done very well, with not just food, but the whole thing, is it's allowed more people to be born, to live healthy lives, to, um, to, uh, um, uh, to live uh, to full old age. That's a remarkable accomplishment, something that anyone would have thought of as impossible. And if we think that you know every soul that is born is there to perhaps to live and love and worship God and love neighbor, then it's just a good thing. We can then argue about whether there are too many people in some way, but um, the basic idea that that's the problem we have: too many people, not too many people dying of starvation or plague, is just this incredible accomplishment. And yes, our labor is in many ways overall much, much more interesting, more humanly fulfilling um, than it ever used to be. And it comes with all these benefits. We're all literate. Um, we all can travel. Yeah, I mean, that would have been unimaginable a couple of hundred years yeah, ago. Um, basically, almost, basically 100% of the population can read and write and has the time to read and write. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and, and it's right around the French Revolution, Condorcet, the Marquis de Condorcet, wrote a, a sort of essay on the future of humanity in which he said we would asymptotically um, approach perfection. And I always get my students to, to in, if I can ever think of an excuse, I get students to read the relevant chapter because he was laughed out of court for the things he said were going to happen, like everyone would be able to read, like we would have roughly speaking social equality in comparison to um, the way people lived then, like the kind of comforts we would have. So, uh, you know, it just seemed like a, a, a fantasy then, um, mm. and yet it's all come true. I'm glad you said that, Edward, because one of the one of the things that I hear also on both sides of this shadow boxing is an awful lot of hand wringing about our systems. Everybody hates them. Everybody complains about them for different reasons. Everybody says if only it was adjusted in such and such a way that everything would be perfect. That seems to me to greatly underestimate the spectacular success of these systems. And I'm not necessarily the greatest um, a, a, a natural reader of Steven Pinker, but I have read his most recent book, Enlightenment Now, in which he argues with data that in almost every single respect, life has got better for almost every single person yeah. um, in, with regard to key indicators. It seems important not to lose sight of that, right? That our, our economic systems have accomplished absolutely previously unimaginable uh, things. Yeah, I mean, the way I tend to look at it is, and there's a quote that I don't have quite in my head right, but if you're going to, if the human race puts all of its energy and intelligence into nothing but material gains, then you're going to get a lot of material gains. Humans are pretty intelligent and competent. And the complaint one wants to make about modernity, um, if you wish to complain about it, and I often do, is that we you know, we, we've lost spiritual values, we've lost the things that make life make sense, we've lost touch with God, and, and that's, those I think are very serious complaints, and part of the reason we've done that is that we focus too heavily on um, these material gains. But we have in fact in the material sphere made tremendous gains, mm. and and those are goods in themselves, right? Especially the advances we've made in people's health, and the ability for more people to do the kinds of jobs that they actually love, rather than just things that are barely what it takes to put yeah. bread on the table. You know, there's a, there's a lot of romanticism yeah. talking about shadow boxing. One of the 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 the, the, the shadow boxing sides is, are the people who get all romantic about simple farming, and I'm going to say yes. they, they, they irritate the hell out of me because yes. you know if well, you actually yes. look at what simple farming used to be. I uh, mean, it was a it was a life sentence. To yeah, was, you know, mat terrible health problems at an early grave. Right, backbreaking labor, ignorance. Yeah, um, I mean the amount of I of idealism, ideological idealism about back to the land lifestyles is extraordinary. Yeah, now I, I think this it could hardly be more unhelpful than to to, to think of that. Um, you know, we, we can talk about how we've damaged the land and the air and so forth, and correct, we should, we must talk about these things. We must look at the economy as a system like any human system with flaws and need of improvement. That's, you know, to say that we should praise it doesn't mean we shouldn't also criticize it. Right. But to pretend that right. there's some e easy, simple solution, just go back right. to the land. No, yes. it doesn't work that way. It yes, it things really haven't got worse. You know, you know there's, a, there's a lot of nostalgia around, right? There's a lot of, oh, things were great when we all lived simple lifestyles and never left our farmsteads. Uh, um, and it seems to me that kind of nostalgia is wholly inappropriate. Yes, exactly. And, basi yeah. and based on almost no real knowledge of history. Uh, the, the, the famous 20th century economist, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, who was a very entertaining writer, um, talks about his childhood as a, the son of a farmer in, in New England where the farming wasn't very high quality and getting up at 5 a.m. to spread manure over the farm before he went off to school and yeah. thinking, there's got to be a better way to live. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so and he became a Harvard that, professor, so there you go. Right, so, so there was a better way, it turned out. So yeah. off the back of that, Edward, having said that um, we have a lot to celebrate, maybe we can, we can focus on this question about nature and environment. Sure. It seems to me that I'm in general uh, very keen to draw attention to the often under-celebrated benefits of our contemporary way of life and our contemporary economic structures. But it is also, I think, undeniable that, uh, that economic arrangements, which persistently 
and systematically destroy the future cannot be said to be working. So the question, my question for you is, why are our economic arrangements destroying the future? And what can we do about it? Um, well, I'm not sure I'm as, as persuaded they're pers destroying the future as you are. But mm -hmm. let's just say, let's, let's take a step back for a second and think about the 1960s when ecology first entered into the, the mainstream. And there were a lot of people then saying that the need to protect the environment would destroy capitalism, as it was called, um, that you couldn't both run a company to, to, to maximize profits and be responsible to the environment. Or survivable levels of profit, right? Yeah, survival levels of profit. If any company actually paid attention to the environmental concerns as well as, well, it, it wouldn't be able to do that. It, it would lose a competitive edge yeah. over its... Right. And as it turns out, with the help of the government, that isn't true. So the, the various environmental protection acts of the U.S., have in the U.S. and in Europe, similarly, um, not in the developing world, um, or as I like to call it, poor countries, but, in, but in, in rich countries, we've had remarkable success in reducing pollution. You know, if you look back at the, the rhetoric and the you know, sort of Time magazine articles from the late 1960s, you would never have guessed that, say, car emissions from cars are down more than 95 or 98 percent. Um, you know, rivers that were completely dead, almost literally dead, no living things, um, are now, you know, you can fish safely in them and so forth. And there are some pretty serious issues. I'm not trying to downplay these issues. Um, I, you know, I, I have my own list, um, some of which overlaps with, with, uh, with, with the normal lists. But there's no question that, you know, we should worry about biodiversity. We should worry about you know, we should be concerned about global warming. We should be concerned about um, various, you know, issues of, of, of pollution of, of one sort or another, human. And, and this is the, the cost, if you will, or just maybe really part of the fact that humans now have such capacity to use the environment. But, and this gets back to the thing you said earlier, Carmody, about how this is under our control. There's nothing about the economy that says we can't change this. Um, now, the, the split that you really get is between people who think that the modern economy is structurally so messed up that we need to have an entirely new economy that will not be so damaging to the future, as you put it, and people who say, well, this is just another technocratic problem. It's the same kind of problem that was solved by X and Y and Z in the Science. 1970s. Science, in other words. Science so and technology and social rules and regulations can resolve these problems. And let's get at it. So, so in other words, for those who recognize that global warming is an issue and climate change is an issue and we need to do something about it, there are people who look to the government as the savior, uh, as the one who's going to fix everything by various regulations. And there are the ones who look to science as the savior. He says we're just going to get technical solutions that mean that our technology will no longer be outputting damaging CO2 and that kind of thing. Well, I wouldn't put it between technology and the government. I would put it between change and reduction. So you say, well, we need to do something to deal with this problem. And I mean, whoever, however we're going to deal with it, the governments are going to play a very major role. That's, you know, it's not mm. going to not work that way. Uh, uh, Edward, could I, could I sharpen the, yeah, it's very interesting please. what you're saying, right? But could I sharpen the, the focus? So, and I think you make a very good point, by the way, about certain forms of, for example, pollution, in fact, are far better controlled than they've ever been. I mean, fewer people now die from, for example, indoor pollution than have ever died in the past, right? So, and we have a tendency to under... What Again, to, to celebrate those success stories, right? And, and many people don't even know that indoor pollution was a, a pervasive cause of mortality still, um, still. in previous times. So I, I, I'm, I'm very in favor of, of, of you pointing out that, that, that we haven't only got problems, we've also had many solutions. But I made possibly the mistake of watching a video uh, yesterday of Jordan Peterson talking about climate change. Oh, gosh. Um, and I wouldn't recommend um, that anybody tries to do that. But one of the things that he uh, very much enjoyed pointing out was that the last COP uh, was number 27, 
And yes, that means there have been 27 meetings of the world's leaders in order to try to prevent global warming. And have we prevented global warming? No. And he, of course, uses this uh, as an argument uh, in various different directions, but among others for the fruitlessness of the, of, of the geopolitical process to try to prevent climate change. But he, he has a point in the sense that we are at the 27th COP. Global warming is an almost unimaginably large threat to the future of human life on Earth. We are looking at between three and four degrees of warming at the moment. And the evidence seems increasingly to be, and I don't know how much uh, you might have followed this, that it was specifically uh, the vested interests of particular corporations that have prevented stronger legislation um, to control climate change in the past. And uh, I would very strongly recommend everybody to watch the BBC a three-part BBC documentary is called Big Oil versus the World, which, which reveals in a way that we suspected but didn't before know that the CEOs of, among others, ExxonMobil and Coke Industries and the rest of them um, really were preventing climate legislation. So with all of the positive and good news stories taken into account, we surely are nevertheless looking at a situation where governments have in fact not been able to control or channel economic interests in a way that is going to be fatal for many, many, many human beings in the future. Well, I guess I'm a little bit less pessimistic than you are about all of this. So to start, I would say that this is the normal give and take of the economy. So it took 40 years to get labor laws to protect workers. It took about 15 years to get the first pollution laws passed in, the, in Western countries from the 1960s. Um, when, when it started to get attention. You're talking about probably the single largest change in the use of energy in human history. Uh, well, maybe not the single largest, because probably the adaption of coal and then electricity was as large, but it's that kind of scale. Mm. So, you know, let's, let's, uh, are we making no progress? Well, you know, we are in the process of shifting from from internal combustion engines to electric engines. We've made huge savings in, in the use of energy per GDP output. So in fact, energy and carbon emissions in, in developed economies have pretty much stopped increasing. It's, it's, it's almost all of it now comes from developing, you know, countries getting richer. Um, and, and they are getting richer at a much less energy intensive rate than happened in, in the mm. past. And prosperity is, at least up to now, the best way to deal with challenges from things like climate. Um, so I, I, so I I'm, 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 that. I'm, you know, I'm less. I, I you, see you're, this. You're, you're less worried about it. But, but maybe I, can I just put the 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 the, the exact circumstances to you, um, Edward? Because it'd be very interesting to, to to know if you think this is an economic problem or not. It was a real piece of climate legislation to limit carbon emissions was absolutely within reach 20 years ago. And it was sabotaged by covert action of the oil industry, removing politicians who talked about carbon emissions. Now, that 20-year delay may well have cost us, and I'm, I'm only quoting the IPCC, this is not anything to do with what I do or don't think, may well have cost a billion lives. Right. Well. And in that in that circumstance, in that circumstance, it's not so much that we haven't had many successes. It's that the system, as it was then set up, and the question mark maybe is still set up because the way that COP27 went um, is strongly suggested that the same forces are in play. Something about the way the system was set up means that the common good, in particular, the good of the most vulnerable people, just wasn't served when there was every possibility that it could be. And it doesn't seem that this was to do with just the naturally slow process of social change. This was to do with specific acts of sabotage by business interests. Now, um, is that to do with a political failure? Is it to do with economic failure? Is it structural or systematic? Was it just bad luck? Is the, Yeah, what's your kind of reading of that? Okay, well, I, I, there are a couple of things to sort of paraphrase or you know, sort of step around there. One is that, of course, executives tend to be very influenced by their own economic interest. It's hard to, to differentiate your self-interest from the objective good. So yeah, it would be quite likely that oil companies would see oil as a good thing. Coal companies, uh, you know, the, the E.F. Schumacher, the small is beautiful man, 
He worked as an economist for the British Coal Board, and he has some withering comments about people who think that coal is bad for the environment. Um, mm. and, uh, and, and that's very entertaining to me because you know everything that he stands for in the rest of his book would suggest that of, coal is bad. But yeah, you know, once in, you're sitting the there right talking to coal miners all the time, <laughs> it just it's very hard to change your it mind. It just gets through. Yeah. And so one yeah. of the things about the political process, um, and because the economy is basically so entwined with politics, the economic process and big issues like this is inherently going to be very political. Um, one of the questions about the political process in the modern world is, is it, is it working? And yeah. I would say, you know, while the economy works really well, overall the political systems are not working nearly as well. And that, of mm -hmm. course, has an influence on the economy. So I would be concerned about that. Um, but I would also say that, you know, it's when you're talking about this level of technological change, the scope, you know, I've, I've Obviously, what a billion lives means is a little hard to tell, but you know it does take a bit of time, and we're doing. I would say, if we step back, I don't think we're doing as bad a job as as we what we might think. I mean, I would worry a lot more about biodiversity, if you want, than I would about global warming, because biodiversity is something that really is very hard to reverse um, in a way that is, uh, and hard to deal with the, the effects of it. Uh, that is the loss of biodiversity. Um, and it's very encouraging to me to see some interest in that topic uh, developing. But, but, uh, but again, it's not... So I, Jordan Peterson actually said quite some time ago something a bit similar to what you just said, which I think is not, is not totally unreasonable, which is that social change, technological change takes time. We haven't had that long to respond to these problems. Maybe we're not doing that badly. And there's something a bit plausible about that. But it seems that the more, and this is true across the environmental issues, and I'm sure across many other issues as well, it does seem that we are in a situation where as we learn more about what's been happening in the past decades, it's very clear that we had the information and we didn't create technological change fast enough because vested interests didn't want us to. Now, I, th I take your point, and that I think is also true um, in relation to the, to the biodiversity problem, right? We've known about the background rate of extinction for a long time. Now, you seem to be saying, which I think is a very interesting claim, in this situation, regardless of how we assess how well or badly we're doing, the primary problem is not mainly economic, it's mainly political yeah. in relation to these issues. Is that right? I am very much saying that. Um, I, I think... The, I mean, there is an economic problem in the sense that, but it's an economic political problem, that developing countries basically um, would prefer to grow and deal with global warming later. Um, yes. If you're a political leader or a citizen, you're saying, I, I want to become richer because that brings me those things that we were talking about earlier, that brings me literacy, that brings me op economic opportunities, that brings me health, a and, and this sort of idea that somehow this is bad for me because it's going to bring global warming is, is going to be very abstract in, in, mm. in that to, to a political leader um, because it would be abstract to his citizens. Now, sometimes yeah. you can find ways that are really going to be congruent. So you talked about indoor pollution. Um, you know, indoor pollution also is very carbon intensive. Uh, it's yes. burn, building, burning open fires inside of houses is bad for you in so many different dimensions. Yeah. Um, so let's focus on doing things where everyone's going to see this as a benefit. Let's get rid win, of indoor win, right? fires. And electric cars have the tendency to be that way also. Um, you know, they're, they're just beneficial in many different dimensions. Um, so... You know, I, I think that's one way that one can get a kind of political compromise going. But I do think that the, the main issues here are not, oh, the economy can't do this. Um, the can-do of the economy is, is something that's been very, very impressive for the last two centuries. And I don't mm -hmm. see this as necessarily structurally different from the other kinds of challenges that we've, we've faced. If insofar as you're also um, a Christian studying these questions... To what extent do you think a moral critique is called for? 
at the economic level of our current arrangements and how far do you see them as, if you like, appropriate for what we might hope for from, sorry to use this expression, a, a Christian civilization? Okay, so let me try and answer that question as clearly as I can. Is I think that economic issues are always moral issues because they're human issues and we're always aiming at the good when we do things. We want to be good at our work. We want to have good and just rewards. There, there isn't anything in the economy that shouldn't be thought of as ethical. It's another one of the cons of professional economists is to pretend that economics isn't normative. But it is normative. It's all about what we're trying to do with our labor and our consumption and how we arrange our production. So I think the notion of non-moral economics is in many ways even worse than the idea of saying we have a capitalist system because it, it, it undermines the whole notion of what he being human is in, 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 in the most basic sense, that we would have something we spend eight hours of our day or 10 or 12 um, for most of our lives doing labor, whether paid or unpaid, and that it would somehow be outside of our moral world. That's just not the way humans are. Um, now, the second question is, is, is Christian, is, 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 is it Christian? Of course it's Christian. Uh, and again, this is a con of economists, and you can look into the economic, to the, I'm sorry, the, the um, history of economic thinking and realize that there was a very strong anti-Christian dimension to it from the very beginning. But that's wrong. Um, this is about building as it were, the kingdom of God, or you know, doing something to the city of man to make it better. And that's, it involves Christian virtues like humility and, and generosity. Um, as I said, I describe the economy as being about gift, um, and it involves a kind of commitment to the future that is very closely and, and deeply Christian in its, in its understanding uh, of what the world is good for. And I suppose the last thing I would say about this is that there is a Christian vision of saying we shouldn't care about this world, but the whole notion of the incarnation, that God takes an interest in how we live here and now, um, belies that, that claim. And the idea that we can live moderately, well, that's within our economic range um, if we want to. The idea that we can live well, that's very much a Christian idea. Thanks, Edward. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. That's, um, that's great. Really Thank good. you so much for joining us and sharing some of your insights. For great to have you with us. The whole career of financial journalism. Yeah. Thank you. I've, it's, been a, it's, it's very nice to come and talk about these things. They're, they obviously mean a lot to me, and thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.